Before we plunge into this chapter, and I'm going to look at a particular aspect of it this morning, not the whole of the chapter, um, and it's going to be at a fairly high level as well. I want to outline where I believe Christians agree, um, but also will then go on to where they disagree in terms of the thousand years and the millennium. And I want to look at the, the different ideas um, a bit later in the sermon. But I want to start with those places where the, the overall pattern of things at the end of time that I believe that Christians um, agree with and are together on. But before we do that, just a couple of reminders. First of all, that God is interested in formation not information. God is interested in formation, not information. Now we're going to do a lot of information this morning, but that is useless if it doesn't then spill over into affecting how we live our lives as Christians, as to how our discipleship grows. We need that knowledge, we need that understanding, but it can't stay up here, it's got to actually be transformed into action. And secondly, to borrow from Paul, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. There are parts of scripture which we will really struggle to understand. There will be some parts which only appear once in scripture, and the millennium is one of those. And we need to be careful about how we interpret that, and we need to interpret scripture by scripture to try and get some understanding of what's going on. Sometimes when we do that, we will find harmony with other passages. At other times, we will find paradox and a creative tension builds. If you want a classic example of that, try and work out about human free will and God's sovereignty and how we actually merge those two together from across scripture. But those two warnings Let's go into what I believe are the key things that Christians do agree with around chapter 20 of Revelation. The first one is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in, God is in control. Now I know that's hard at times. I can look back at periods in my own life and I've really questioned that because of what I've been going through, and I guess all of us have done that. But the underlying message from the whole of Revelation is that the Lamb wins. There is a Redeemer, and we will see him face to face. God is sovereign. Secondly, that Christ will come again, and when he does so, he will renew all things in such a way that all that is evil and contrary to God's will will be written off, wiped away, gone. And we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks in our preaching from Revelation. Thirdly, that, that renewal will involve judgment. It's there at the end of our reading this morning. I'm not going to go into that in detail. But there is a judgment and a separation. And the fourth thing is one which we've already touched on in our songs this morning and, and in um, the collect, that during the current age, Christian disciples have two very specific roles. 
We're called to be witnesses to the forgiving love of God shown to us in Christ. A forgiveness that rescues us from the judgment we talked about at the end of that reading. And secondly, we're called to make disciples of all who respond to that witness, encouraging each other to grow more Christ-like day by day, to let the information we have become formation in our lives. And that will include our call to love our neighbor, both human and non-human, in practical ways as well. Now, if you forget everything else that I say this morning or get totally confused by what I'm about to say, hold on to those things and live them out. I'm going to return to them at the end of the sermon. But within this chapter, we have this idea of the millennium, of the thousand years. And there are a whole variety of views on it. Each of these has issues theologically, the ways in which the Bible is being interpreted, implications for our Christian living. And to look at all of these would be a course in its own right, not just a sermon series, let alone a single sermon. So what I want to do this morning is to give a thumbnail sketch of four key ways in which Christians have understood the millennium. And then also then to look at the discipleship implications for each of them, very, very shortly and briefly. What I'm giving is not a theological background or a theological critique, let alone a recommendation of one or the other of the views. Although probably as I go through, you'll actually probably begin to see where I'm coming from, or perhaps more importantly, or, or, or more clearly, where I'm not coming from. So we'll, we'll see. So um, come on, can we have the, um, have the sat-nav up on the screen? And don't be frightened by the map. Um, I will take us through this, but it will be at quite a speed. So, um, so fasten your seatbelts and let's journey. The first major divide in interpreting this chapter is between how the thousand years applies and how chapter 20 fits with the other events in Revelation. Some will take Revelation as acting strictly chronologically. So in other words, chapter 20 not only follows chapter 19 in terms of the the literature, but also it follows it chronologically. And that the thousand years is an astronomical thousand years. You can start your clock on day one and you can watch it wheel round until a thousand years have gone by. So that means that this current age is abruptly terminated with Christ's return. Satan the deceiver is chained in such a way that his deceptions can no longer hold sway. And then there is a period of a thousand years in which some of the saints reign with Christ before leading on to the judgment and renewal of heaven and earth. It's a pattern which is called premillennialism because Jesus' return is pre or before the thousand years. 
in its so-called historical classical form, it's the earliest view of the chapter. Are you with me so far? I'm getting some nods, that's good, right. Then that view itself received a major revision through the work of J.N. Darby and C.J. Schofield in the 19th and early 20th century. For those of you who've been brought up in Brethren Assemblies, um, or if you are a conservative North American evangelical today, his view of the millennium is probably the only one you've ever been taught and think it's probably the only one that exists. Darby split history into segments which he called dispensations and he built his premillennialism on top of that. He raided the scripture elsewhere to get an understanding of what the millennium looked like particularly the need to literally fulfill Old Testament prophecies about Israel, which he thought had not been fulfilled, regarding Jerusalem, the land, and the temple. And in his view, prior to the millennium starting, there will be a removal of Christians to heaven, the so-called rapture which will protect them from a time of great tribulation still on earth. Christ will come in to bring a halt to the chaos and to inaugurate the thousand astronomic years. During this period, there will be a literal fulfillment of certain prophecies about Israel, including a rebuilding of the temple and the restarting of temple sacrifices. The Jews as a nation would turn to God. That's where he moved it to. So what do these premillennial views do with regard to discipleship? Well, firstly, I think they can lead to a very pessimistic view of history and of the future. If things are bad now, they're going to get even worse. And there's nothing we can do about it. As Christians, we won't have to face the worst because we'll have been raptured into glory. So the net result of that is we're saved to go to heaven, period. That's all we're there for as Christians. It comes out of this view. We don't need to get involved in social action because it's pointless, everything's going to be destroyed anyway, so why bother even to start now? Christians holding this view are very often the ones who will be found saying they don't need to do anything about climate change, because after all, it's all going to be destroyed anyway, so why bother? As summed up perhaps best in President Reagan's environment advisor, who said, don't worry, Mr. President, when we have cut the last tree down, the Lord will return. And secondly, and I, I tread very cautiously on this one, and some of you will probably want to come back to me afterwards on it. I speak conscious of what's been going on in Gaza and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv over these, this past week. But dispensational premillennialism can come with a very unbalanced view of the relative rights of Palestinians and Israelis, with an ordinarily strong focus on Israel. 
And arguably, it's that view of the millennium which has shaped American foreign policy over the past decades. It's tragic because of the impact it has on Palestinian Christians. I've sat with them in, in Bethlehem and had them weep more or less over as we've talked this through. They say, you Christians in the West who hold this view of, of the premillennial um, view, you've ended up with victimization of where we are living in the Palestinian territories. So those are two ways in which discipleship works out from these premillennial views. Are you still with me? We're getting there. We're part way through. Now, if some treat Revelation 20 as being part of a chronological sequence and an astronomic 1,000 years, if you go down the other column on that slide, Others say no, the thousand years is, is, is simply a long time. And Revelation 20 is simply just in the literary sequence following chapter 19. Now if you think that's strange, one of the novels I was reading whilst I was on holiday was a crime thriller, and it was quite interesting because the chapters were sort of interleaved. One chapter was part of the story leading up to the crime being committed, and the next chapter was the lady who was investigating the crime slowly unravelling what was going on by looking at the evidence after it had happened. So we were sort of out of sync chronologically between the chapters. And there are those who would say that that's what's going on here in chapter 20 of Revelation. The binding of Satan at the start of chapter 20 is seen as having happened during Christ's first ministry here on earth. Now, as with premillennialism, there are two differing views with this longer time frame. For some who take the name of postmillennialism, because they say that Christ will come when that long period of time is over, it's a time when through the preaching of the gospel, through social action, everything will become better in the world and the world will slowly become Christianized and the current age will morph into that millennium that's talked of in Revelation 20. Those views underpin much of the worldwide missionary movement in the 19th century and certainly prompted those who were very involved in Christians who were involved in social reform in our own country during that century. At some point, as that grows, the world will change and become more Christ-like, and then Christ will return. Now, that grew at the same time as the optimism from the Enlightenment was there, but most of the proponents of this view say this is based firmly on what they see in Scripture, not just on culture around them. In the West, we may be tempted to say that's a useless point of view to be actually looking at because we can see how bad it's getting. But if we were to look at the growth of the church in the global south, I think we might have a very different view on this particular aspect of how we view Revelation 20. With regard to discipleship, 
this gives a very positive view of history. But it says, as Christians, we can change things. We can move forward and it will get better. A 19th century abolitionist preacher in, in Massachusetts said, look at the facts of the world. You see a continual and progressive triumph of the right. And he was talking spiritually there, not politically. A change that was coming because Christians were living out and acting in the world. We can make the world a better place. Maybe William Blake's cynical building Jerusalem here wasn't so cynical after all. The danger of this view and the way in which it developed after the 19th century is that it becomes so focused on social action that it forgets about preaching the gospel. Praise God, things have actually changed, I think, since that time. And then the final view has the, the title of amillennialism. In other, in other words, that millennium is the thousand, is, is the long period of time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. It's the time we're in now. The deceiver has been chained when Christ came in the first instance. And we're living in the now and not yet of the fulfillment of all that God intends. A time when we can begin to experience some of the renewal that we'll read of in Revelation 20 and 21. Now, not in its fullness, but in part. Both in our personal walk with God and in transformation that we see in society. And in general, all of the Old Testament prophecies which may seem to relate to the land or to the temple, find their fulfillment in Christ, as the writer to the Hebrews has it. What does this view do for our discipleship? I think it gives perhaps the most realistic view of history. It chimes with what we experience of God and also what we don't yet experience as well. And there can be a danger with it. We just plod along. And you say, well, the Lord's coming some stage, so we'll, we'll just keep going until that happens. At the same time, I think this view gives us encouragement to get on with transforming things as we prepare for the coming of the new heavens and new earth, the renewed heaven and renewed earth that's promised for us at the end of Revelation. In the creation care area, theologian Chris writes talks of the push of Genesis 1 to creation care. And he says that's balanced by the pull of Revelation 20, 21 and 22, in the other direction. Now those are very much a very, very high level view of some of the views of Revelation 20. Are you still with me? Are we still there? I'm getting, getting nods around, good. <clears throat> now for each of us, we will probably have had different experiences of how this chapter has been taught. 
but we need to be open to other views as well. And we need to decide for ourselves where we are in terms of interpreting that chapter. And we may well disagree between us in the, within the congregation. I'm sure some of you will come back and grab me immediately afterwards on some of the things I've said. I'm happy for that and, and more than happy to talk things through. But I want to finish this morning by going back to those things that we hold in common. In particular, the central fact that Christ will return. Now, leaving aside how that happens with regard to the millennium, surely we look forward to that day with joy and with expectation and with a desire to prepare ourselves for that return, to keep on doing those things which Christ has asked us to do, to love God with all that we are and all that we have, to love our neighbour as ourselves, whether that neighbour is human or non-human and to get on with what God has called us to, to be ready for that day when he comes. I want to finish with some words from 2 Peter 3, because I think they act as a bit of a commentary on all that we've looked at this morning. In that epistle we find these words but do not forget this one thing dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look toward the day of God and speed its coming. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a renewed heaven and a renewed earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.